Hello and welcome back to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the final episode in our series on corruption and conspiracy. And this one particularly is on old world ideas and the new world order. So mainly this was kind of the themes episode to wrap up. Like I said, everything we've been talking about the past few episodes and the new world order is the culmination of everything we've been talking about and it is the logical theme of all these episodes but i wanted to key in on the fact that none of these ideas are new and we've talked about this before and i've added in things from mainly plato and aristotle they're the best examples and the oldest examples that we have a lot of evidence from. There are a lot of writings from Plato and Aristotle that have made it through the centuries, and we can look at those, read those. They're very detailed. So that's a very good example, and it's a long time ago. So it proves that these are definitely not new ideas at all. So that's what I want to do with this episode is start off with Plato and Aristotle's views on kind of the new world order ideas and some of those concepts and then we'll move into the new world order as it is known in most conspiracy circles but also mentioned by many presidents and world leaders and it is a well-known title and with the new world order we'll talk about the goals and the methods so we'll talk about these goals that sound really great Uh, things like world peace and unity and stopping hate speech, all these things that sound really good. We want that for society. But we're going to talk about what that really means and how it's done and how it's not as rosy as it appears at first glance. And then we'll talk about some of the methods that are used, such as how do these world leaders and elite people coordinate with each other? Um, Well, we'll mention some of the meetings that happen on a yearly basis where they all meet together and talk about these kinds of things that affect the worldwide society. I'll get into proposals and ideas for future currencies, a one world currency, and then we'll get into kind of the overall methods and tools. And these are technocracy and cybernetics and social engineering. So we'll get into all of those things. So let's go ahead and get started and begin with Plato. So I want to read a few quotes from Plato. This all comes from Republic, and that was probably one of his most famous books that he wrote. And um, I've got quite a bit of reading, so bear with me. This is a bit of a long bit, but it kind of wraps up his views on these types of things, and then I'll talk about it. So Plato writes, and I quote, And this is called the wealthy class, and the drones feed upon them. That is pretty much the case, he said. The people are a third class, consisting of those who work with their own hands. They are not politicians, and they have not much to live on. This, when assembled, is the largest and most powerful class in a democracy. True, he said, but then the multitude is seldom willing to congregate unless they get a little honey. And do they not share, I said? Do not their leaders deprive the rich of their estates and distribute them among the people, at the same time taking care to reserve the larger part for themselves? Why, yes, he said. To that extent, the people do share, 
and the persons whose property is taken from them are compelled to defend themselves before the people as they best can? What else can they do? And then, although they may have no desire of change, the others charge them with plotting against the people and being friends of oligarchy. True. And the end is that when they see the people, not of their own accord, but through ignorance, and because they are deceived by informers seeking to do them wrong, then at last they are forced to become oligarchs in reality. They do not wish to be, but the sting of the drones torments them and breeds revolution in them. And then in another part, he writes, Yes, he says, let us consider that. At first, in the early days of his power, he is full of smiles, and he salutes everyone whom he meets. He, to be called a tyrant, who is making promises in public and also in private, liberating debtors and distributing land to the people and his followers, and wanting to be so kind and good to everyone. Of course, he said. But when he has disposed of foreign enemies by conquest or treaty, and there is nothing to fear from them, then he is always stirring up some war or other, in order that the people may require a leader, to be sure. He has not also another object, which is that they may be impoverished by payment of taxes, and thus compelled to devote themselves to their daily wants, and therefore less likely to conspire against him. Clearly. And if any of them are suspected by him of having notions of freedom and of resistance to his authority, he will have a good pretext for destroying them by placing them at the mercy of the enemy. And for all these reasons, the tyrant must be always getting up a war. So those are the writings of Plato that I wanted to highlight there. As we go back to the beginning of what he said, he talks about the different classes of people. You have the wealthy class, and then you have, he says, the drones that feed on them. And then you have the third class, and that is the working class. So you've got the elite, which is a small group at the top, the drones, which would be the poorest people, the lower class, small group at the very bottom, and then the working class, which he says they don't have much to live upon. So these people aren't what we would consider middle class, probably more like Eh, upper lower class, lower middle class, something like that, that are your just common workers and laborers. And so this is how it's split up. But what he says is that in a democracy, the working class has the majority sway. They, there are the most of them. And in a democracy, it's majority rules. So if you have the most on your side, then you get what you want. And what happens is that they start taking things from the rich because they want more stuff. And it says they distribute them among the people. And this is a requirement in order to basically buy the vote of the working class. So the rich go along with this, and they do give what he calls a little honey to the working class so that they will be on their side and cast their votes towards them, and they're willing to do this. But the problem is that it ends up happening that more and more is taken from the elite, from the rich, and as more and more gets taken, then they have to start defending themselves, and they have to start doing something about it. Well, what can they do about it? They can't really physically rebel against the working class, because the elite only make up maybe 10% of the society. But what power do they have? They have wealth, and they have power, and they have sway. So he says what they do is they end up forming an actual oligarchy. 
that before they were being accused of being oligarchs and being elites that have all the power, and that's what the common man accuses them of, even though that wasn't really the case. They're just rich, and they do have wealth, and they do have power, but they weren't necessarily an oligarchy. It was a true democracy. But what happens is that they have no other choice. What are they going to do? And that's the obvious choice, is to form a true oligarchy and then actually start to gain control over the people. And that's what ends up happening. And that ends up breeding revolution among the drones, Plato says. And so this ends up not going well for society. Then you have that cycle all over again, where there's a revolution of the common men, they overthrow the elites and the oligarchical government. And then you have a new democracy that's instated and it repeats. And so that's what he talks about, that there are these different classes and that this is the trend that society goes through. So he then talks about tyrants. And when you get to tyrants, he says good things about them at first. It sounds good that they make promises in public and they liberate the debtors and they distribute land to all the people. They're so kind to everyone. And this sounds wonderful. But he also talks about how they make promises in private and that he's basically doing things behind the scenes that aren't necessarily as good. If you remember when we talked about the influential books of the past, we talked about a few that mention these types of things, specifically Machiavelli's The Prince, where he talks about how a ruler must look good in public, and specifically he must pretend to be religious, but in private he can't actually act good or morally or religious, because if he does, he's going to get run over and he's not going to keep his power. He's not going to expand his power. And so what he needs to do is look really good in public, but in private, be completely ruthless and take all the power. And that's what Plato says a leader does and that a leader basically has to do. But in order to keep power and in order to keep the people from rebelling against him, He has to give them motivation. They have to have a reason, and that reason is going to be a common enemy. So he says that there are enemies out there, and the tyrant is always mentioning them and stirring up wars and making sure there's an enemy. And if they do defeat all their enemies, then he'll make sure he stirs up another war. And he says he always has to be getting up a war at all times because that's the way he keeps power. If the people are scared and they are not feeling very safe or secure, then they're going to look to somebody. They're going to look to their tyrant, their government, to take care of them, to protect them, to defeat this horrible enemy. And that's the way it goes. So that's what I wanted to mention as far as Plato's quotes. But I did want to talk about a lot of the things that he mentions in The Republic in general, because he gets into a lot more, and I didn't want to read through, you know, five pages of random quotes. Education is one thing that he talks about many times, and he specifically says that you have to control the education in a society in order to control the society. He says that everything in society is based on education, every single thing, and it can all be tied back to that, so it is so important. And what he what he says, and he goes to the extreme, that you have to control music for content. And the way the term music is used by him, that includes all kinds of writing, literature, poetry, music itself, art, all this kind of stuff. Basically anything we would think of as 
the media in today's sense, and that all this has to be controlled. And he goes to the extreme as saying that even the poets who he adores and he quotes, talks about Homer, that even they have to be censored and not allowed to be talked about and read and included in education because the poets actually lie. And he says that because they tell lies and because they talk about things that are bad, there is murder, there's deceit, there's treachery, there's conspiracy, there's all this kind of stuff in art and in music, true music, and in literature and in poetry, all this stuff. And we can't have society exposed to that because if they're exposed to these things, then they might actually pick them up and enact these things, such as rebellion and murder and treachery, and we don't want that for society. So we basically censor all this stuff and make sure that the only thing that society is exposed to in their education is good and virtuous, and that's what he says we have to do. He specifically says that dialectic is the only way for true education. So he would not view our current methods of giving a lecture in front of the class and having kids fill out worksheets he would not see that as actual true education. But he does talk about differing education for the elite versus the majority of the population. So like we've quoted in many of the other episodes, there is this difference in education between the elite class and those at the top and the majority of the rest of society that basically gets a dumbed-down version so that they are easier to control. And Plato agrees with this. He says that for these elite, the people that you might think have the potential to become elite and have the potential to become rulers, but you're not quite sure. He says that you should not do compulsory education because what you do is you test them for self-motivation and you give them the free will to do what they want as kids. And if you do that and they choose to seek out an education and educate themselves then you're able to truly assess them, assess their usefulness for society and for the state and their self-motivation and inward motivations for learning and for progressing and for doing the right thing, showing virtuous character. And that's what you need to do. And so when you can find those kids and you test them and make sure that they are the ones that you want, then you can make sure you give them the liberal education, the elite education, and that's how you groom these future leaders and future elite. Now, another aspect that he talks about that's very important is constant surveillance. You should always be watching everybody, the children, society, just all the different people, always be watching them, always have them under constant surveillance so you can keep tabs on them, know what they're doing, know how things are progressing, know where your troubles are all that kind of stuff constantly, especially the children when it comes to education, because you want to make sure you know what they're learning and what they're thinking and the ideas that they're passing around to each other, all this kind of stuff. He says that the potential elite should be dedicated and loyal to the state from childhood. So from the time they're little kids, we have to make sure that they're dedicated, which we talked about the self-motivation, but also loyal to the state. And you test that the same way. You give them free will and you monitor them with constant surveillance and make sure that everything they do is for the good of the state, that they're obedient and that they're loyal. And this has to occur all the way from their youngest years in childhood and in education. And what you do as they get older to truly test them 
is that you test them through extreme trials and temptations. So you basically put them through major hardships. You tempt them with things that they don't know it's a test, but you're truly testing them and you're giving them these temptations that most people would fall for. But if they don't, then that can show that they really do have that potential to be the elite, to be the leaders, to be these philosopher kings that Plato talks about so much and that he highlights as being the ultimate epitome of a leader, the perfect leader. And so this is how you found out. You do these extreme trials and extreme temptations, and that's how you know whether they're going to pass the test. But the ultimate test, he says, is will they believe a massive lie? So you give them a massive lie about something, and this is giving to, given to them by the state. And if they buy it, and if they believe the state, even though it is just a massive lie, if they fall for it, and they believe it just because the state told them it's true, then they get approved. They are officially able to be in this elite class and be one of the rulers, and that's how you can truly test them, because ultimately, they have to be loyal to the state. They have to put the good of all society, the good of the state, above everything else. We cannot have people with true individuality or liberalism. We have to make sure that the state is the most important thing. Plato says that the elite is a very small class, and that the rulers are part of this small elite class. Now, as you could guess, after everything we've talked about so far, of course, there are only going to be a few people that match up to all these different qualifications, and that is a very small class. Out of this class, only these elite rulers should be the ones to lie. So we talked about how you want to control everything they're exposed to, so they're not even exposed to lies throughout their education and their childhood. Well, the rulers, though, this tiny elite class of rulers, they should lie, actually. It's not that they're only allowed to. They actually should do it, and they should do it for the good of society because that's what's best, and that's what he says, at least. That is his opinion, is that the leaders have to lie, they should lie, it's what's best for the people, but they're the only ones who should, and it is an excused, eh, non-virtuous behavior. So with this, I mentioned the philosopher king idea. That's Plato's idea that philosopher kings are the ideal leaders. They have a broad knowledge of all kinds of things. They are thinkers. They are not selfish. They're not out for wealth and personal gain, but rather what they're trying to do is just lead society in the best way possible, and they know all about all different kinds of things. They spend their time thinking and reading and educating themselves, and these are the people that would be good leaders. These are the virtuous people. So for society, he says that division of labor is the core of society. So you're generally taught in school that Adam Smith is one of the first that popularized the idea of division of labor and specialization. Well, this is popularized in ancient Greece as well, long before Adam Smith. And Plato really harps on division of labor and specialization, that this is key for society. You have to make sure that this exists and you have to cultivate this and that everybody must fill their role and their class. So everybody has a role, everybody has a class, most of the people are in one of these lower classes, and most of their roles are related to their job and what they're supposed to do for the good of the state. Everybody has a role to fill. You need a blacksmith in a town, you need 
a, someone related to medical things in a town. You need somebody that is an educator in the town. You need all these different people, lots of different people. You need soldiers. You need leaders, these small elite people. Everybody has a role. Everybody has a class. You must fill that. That is pretty much the definition of justice when it comes to Plato. And that's kind of the goal of the entire book. It starts off with what is justice? And it ends up being that justice, in a sense, is whatever's good for the state and whatever's good for society as a whole, the greatest good for the greatest number, that is justice in his mind. So another aspect that's interesting is the idea that people should not own property and there should be no such thing as profits. He says that these things corrupt the motives that people have And it brings their motives away from the state and towards themselves and their family and their posterity, which is bad. He doesn't want that. Everything should be for the good of the state. That is ultimate justice. And so we can't have property or profits. Now, this is another thing that is commonly thought of as starting with someone like Karl Marx or something much more near towards our time in history. But it occurs way back here. We have the ideas of socialism and communism and these types of things, communal living, all this kind of stuff. It existed way back then. Like we always, like I've said many times in this podcast, that these ideas are not new. This exists and it repeats and it's always been there. So those are his ideas about property and profits, that these are bad and it pulls people away from the state. And so what he says is that the greatest happiness for the greatest number is what would create a society of justice. Like we talked about, that is kind of his definition of justice. They don't actually truly define it very well. He talks about it many different times as to what it means and talks about it in different ways. But overall, this is the idea that whatever's good for the state is technically justice, and that is virtue, and because that's what's good for society as a whole. Now, another concept that he talks about, we talked about this in the previous episode, that is eugenics, and I did read some stuff and talk about some stuff from Plato, so I'm not going to go into detail here, but he does say you use eugenics for the best-bred society. You don't heal the useless people because it's just a waste. You let them die. You go ahead and kill criminals. You do not allow criminals to live because you don't want them in society either. And that, in general, disrupting society is the definition of injustice. So we talked about how good for society is justice and disrupting society is injustice. So anyone who would disrupt society, well, we don't want them around because... That is the opposite of justice and virtue, so go ahead and basically kill them. And that's his idea. Back to the idea of communal living, women and children should be shared in common. They should be shared in the community. People shouldn't even know who their children are, and people should definitely not have wives. Women are just shared among all the men, and not necessarily in an ownership kind of a sense, just in a sense that it's not a monogamous relationship. People just have relations with who they want to, and that's it. And when it comes to children, women have children, and they're all just kind of thrown together and raised by the community, and you don't really know which one's actually your kid. You might have an idea because he's born around a certain time, but you don't really know. And they're all just shared in community. People don't actually have true parents because the state, of course, is their parent, and the community as a whole is going to raise their children. So it's the ultimate communal living. And 
he talks about how the elite should be gathered together to breed. So you make sure that these elite people are in the same place, the women and the men, and that way they will breed together and you can have more elite children. And then you give them constant surveillance and you monitor them and you do all these tests to see if they're going to rise to the occasion. Now, every once in a while, you'll have a kid from the common class that will pass these types of tests and show the type of potential to be an elite and to be a ruler. But in general, it's going to come probably from this interbreeding of the elite class that is basically contrived and is brought together and forced in a way, and that is what's going to breed the best human beings and have the most potential for creating the future elites of society. So he talks about how there should even be state regulation on breeding, that the state should be in control of who breeds and how much they breed, how many children they have, who they have children with, and all this kind of stuff. So state's in charge of everything, of course. It is centralized planning at its finest. And so... The other thing he talks about is religion, and he talks about how it could go either way, how if God exists or gods exist, then God is perfect by nature, and if he's perfect, then all of his creations are perfect, or they're not from him. So the problem is that all the knowledge they have of the gods comes from the poets, but the poets are not really consistent, and they do say things that basically are saying that the gods are not perfect and that their creations are not perfect. And so if that's the case, then that can't be completely true. Well, if the poets aren't consistent, but that's our only way we get knowledge of God or the gods, then where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with the interpretation coming from the state. That's the only solution. The state will interpret who God is, who the gods are, what that means for society, and the state will tell you what the answers are, because, of course, the state is the only one who can do this for you. And so basically, the state controls religion. Now, on the flip side, Plato says, you know, maybe there is no God. There are no gods. Maybe divinity doesn't exist. But if that's the case, then divinity has no impact on us because it doesn't exist. So it doesn't really matter. So we'll throw that out the window, because if there is no God, then there is no impact and it doesn't matter. But if there is a God, then this is the way it is, you know, he's perfect, all this stuff, and so the state needs to make sure that they interpret who God is, what that means for people, how they should basically live their lives because of this, and on and on. So that's Plato. Let's move on to Aristotle, because he has basically a lot of the same views, but says it differently, and he definitely does differ with Plato on many levels. He actually criticizes Plato and has some rebuttals to Republic. And I'll read a few quotes from Aristotle first, like I did with Plato. So this is a writing from Aristotle. He said, These matters should not be left to youthful caprice. They should be under state supervision and control. The state should determine the minimum and maximum ages of marriage for each sex, the best seasons for conception, and the rate of increase population. If the natural rate of increase is too high, the cruel practice of infanticide should be replaced by abortion. There is an ideal number of population for every state, varying with its position and resources. A state, when composed of too few, is not as a state should be, self-sufficing. While if it is too many, it becomes a nation and not a state, and is almost incapable of constitutional government or of ethnic or political unity. 
Education, too, should be in the hands of the state. That which most contributes to the permanence of constitutions is the adaptation of education to the form of government. The citizens should be molded to the form of government of which he lives. And then in another part, he writes, Revolutions in democracies are generally caused by the intemperance of demagogues, who either in their private capacity lay information against rich men until they compel them to combine, for a common danger unites even the bitterest enemies, or, coming forward in public, stir up the people against them. And another bit about revolutions. Revolutions are affected in two ways, by force and by fraud. Force may be applied either at the time of making the revolution or afterwards. Fraud, again, is of two kinds. For one, sometimes the citizens are deceived into acquiescing in a change of government, and afterwards they are held in subjugation against their will. Two, in other cases, the people are persuaded at first, and afterwards, by a repetition of the persuasion, their goodwill and allegiance are retained. Then the next section from Aristotle. In aristocracies, above all, they are of a gradual and imperceptible nature. The citizens begin by giving up some part of the Constitution, and so, with greater ease, the government changes something else, which is a little more important, until they have undermined the whole fabric of the state. But above all, every state should be so administered and so regulated by law that its magistrates cannot possibly make money. In oligarchies, special precautions should be used against this evil, for the people do not take any great offense at being kept out of the government. Indeed, they are rather pleased than otherwise at having leisure for their private business. But what irritates them is to think that their rulers are stealing the public money. Then they are doubly annoyed, for they lose both honor and profit. But of all the things which I have mentioned, that which most contributes to the permanence of constitution is the adaptation of education to the form of government. Now, to have been educated in the spirit of the constitution is not to perform the actions in which oligarchs or democrats delight, but those by which the existence of an oligarchy or of a democracy is made possible. The next section... Yet to a reflecting mind, it must appear very strange that the statesman should always be considering how he can dominate and tyrannize over others, whether they will or not. How can that which is not even lawful be the business of the statesman or the legislator? Unlawful it certainly is to rule without regard to justice, for there may be might where there is no right. The other arts and sciences offer no parallel a physician is not expected to persuade or coerce his patients, nor a pilot the passengers in his ship. Yet most men appear to think that the art of despotic government is statesmanship, and what men affirm to be unjust and inexpedient in their own case, they are not ashamed of practicing towards others. They demand just rule for themselves, but where other men are concerned, they care nothing about it. Such behavior is irrational, unless the one party is and the other is not born to serve, in which case men have a right to command, not indeed all their fellows, but only those who are intended to be subjects. Then the final section. It is manifest that education should be one and the same for all, and that it should be public and not private, not as at present when everyone looks after his own children separately and gives them separate instruction of the sort which he thinks best, the training in things which are of common interest should be the same for all. 
Neither must we suppose that any one of the citizens belongs to himself, for they all belong to the state, and are each of them a part of the state, and the care of each part is inseparable from the care of the whole. So that wraps up everything that I was going to read from Aristotle. And in his book, Politics, he goes into details about how political systems change, how you go from a democracy to an oligarchy to all these different things. And basically it devolves as time goes on to uh, tyranny and all this stuff. And so that's why in most of these quotes, he talks about revolutions because he's talking about that shift from one form of government to another. And he also talks about how you have the common people that come up against the rich elite, and that's when you have a revolution, and that's when you actually get away from democracy. He also talks about how revolutions happen by force and by fraud, and that Force is pretty much always, and it can either happen to make the revolution happen, that's when it takes place, or force can be applied afterwards to keep control. And he said fraud basically is the same thing, that generally the people are deceived into going for this new form of rule or this new ruler or this new demagogue, what, whoever it is, whatever it is, the people are deceived into doing it, and they will. And then afterwards, maybe they are held by force in subjugation against their will. But other times, they are convinced to switch to this new form of government or this new leader. And then afterwards, they're actually just continued to be convinced. It says, Aristotle says, by a repetition of the persuasion, their goodwill and allegiance are retained. And so they're basically brainwashed, and they're controlled. The state controls the media, the state controls everything, and the people are just convinced that this is what's best for them. And through many ways, some of those would be, like we mentioned, probably creating an enemy, creating a war. People are scared, and yes, they think that having this leader, even though he's probably terrible, it's better than anything else they could have. So he talks about... Some other things here, he talks about how with a constitution that the government changes one little thing, but then that leads to one thing that's a little bit bigger of a deal than one thing that's a little bit bigger, and eventually it's gone. So even having a constitution doesn't truly keep a government in check. I think the founding fathers should have taken a few more notes from this, or I should probably say the Federalist, because technically the founding fathers were against setting up centralized government, period, and it was just the Federalist that wanted the Constitution. But if you want more about that and you have not listened to it yet, go back to our episode on the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. That one is interesting. Hopefully you've listened to it already. But moving on to the next point, he said that the government magistrates, the officials in the government, should not make any money because they're already ruling over the people. And even though people want rulers and they're okay with somebody else ruling so that they don't have to deal with it, they're going to get, he says, doubly annoyed if the people ruling over them are also stealing their money in order to pay themselves. And so eh, that doesn't look too good. We don't want someone stealing our money so they can rule over us. If they just want to rule over us, then eh, as long as they do a decent job, that's okay. Someone's got to do it. But they're not going to steal my money to do it. That, that doesn't sit well with society. If Aristotle could see today's world, he would see that people can be convinced that that's actually a good thing for the government to steal their money and pay themselves with it. But he did not believe that this was such a good thing. He said that the key 
is that education should be oriented towards the state and make sure that people are educated in a way that makes them more compliant and more friendly towards the state, and that that's kind of a big deal. He also talks about statesmanship in general, or politics as we would think of it, that it's actually wrong and that it's immoral. He says it's unlawful to rule without regard to justice. He said that in any other case, you don't have a professional that has to convince his customers to use his services. That's the whole reason why the customers come to the said professional is to use their services. He talks about a physician. If someone's sick, the physician doesn't have to convince them that they should treat their sickness. They just want to do it, and that's why they go to the physician. But when it comes to statesmanship, the statesman actually has to convince the people that they should be ruled and that they do need him and that what he is doing is the right way to do it. And people are not just coming to him saying, hey, we need a leader. Why don't you do this for us? We'll pay you for it. No, that's not the way it works when it comes to politics. And he says that's not really right. And so he again talks about how Education is something that shouldn't be private, it should be state-run, that we should train them in the things that they should know. He also believed in different classes. He specifically talks about in the quote we mentioned that some people are born to be ruled and some people are born to rule. So he did believe that some people were just born to be slaves. And that was just a small number, but there were those people. And the rest may have a right to rule over those that were born as slaves. But the rest of society, people don't really have any right to rule over somebody else. He talked about, in the first quotes that I read, he talked about eugenics, like Plato did, and talked about how the state should regulate, basically, who gets married, when they get married, uh, what even what season they conceive in, and how big the overall population should get, that there's an ideal size, it can't be too big, can't be too small. And he talks about how just overall the state should control all of it. And that's what makes sure that the state stays in power is the state controlling education. So that wraps up everything I wanted to talk about, about Plato and Aristotle. And that gives you basically a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about over the previous few episodes, the state controlling education. We talked about eugenics. We've talked about all kinds of stuff, the corruption and politics and things of this nature. So now let's move on to the idea of the new world order. I am going to start off again, like usual, with a group of quotes here. Um, normally I don't do this many quotes, but in this section of episodes on corruption and conspiracy, I'm trying to use as many quotes as I can to make sure that you don't think I'm just some random person making something up and coming up with all my own ideas. My point by reading all these is that many very famous, very popular world leaders and other influential people in society have stated these things very clearly. So we can look at that as basically evidence of these ideas, at least, and move on from there and actually talk about them. So let's start off with a name that we have heard before, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And he is a definitely a member of the elite class, and he has come up in some of our previous episodes. He said, and I quote, We cannot leap into world government in one quick step. 
In brief, the precondition for eventual globalization, genuine globalization, is progressive regionalization, because thereby we move toward larger, more stable, more cooperative units. The next quote is from Stalin, Joseph Stalin. Quote, Divide the world into regional groups as a transitional stage to world government. Populations will more readily abandon their national loyalty to a vague regional loyalty than they will for world authority. Later, the regions can be brought together all the way into a single world dictatorship. Another section I came across, not a direct quote, but from an article... Though the UN was not initially set up as a world government, the intent was that it would develop into one over time. John Foster Dules from the Council on Foreign Relations, an American delegate to the UN founding meeting who later became Secretary of State under Eisenhower, acknowledged as much in his book, War or Peace. He wrote, and I quote, The United Nations represents not a final stage in the development of world order, but only a primitive stage. Therefore, its primary task is to create the conditions which will make possible a more highly developed organization. The next bit is from Jim Garrison in his writing, America as Empire, Global Leader or Rogue Power. He wrote, Taken cumulatively, the integration of the world as a whole, particularly in terms of economic globalization and the mythic qualities of free market capitalism, represents a veritable empire in its own right. No nation on earth has been able to resist the compelling magnetism of globalization. Few have been able to escape the structural adjustments and conditionalities of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, or the arbitrations of the World Trade Organization. Those international financial institutions that, however inadequate, still determine what economic globalization means, what the rules are, and who is rewarded for submission and punished for infractions. Such is the power of globalization that within our lifetime we are likely to see the integration, even if unevenly, of all national economies in the world into a single global free market system. Then coming out of H.G. Wells's book, The New World Order, which has a very fitting title, this was from 1940, he wrote, quote, It is the system of nationalist individualism that has to go. We are living in the end of the sovereign states. In the great struggle to evoke a westernized world socialism, contemporary governments may vanish. Countless people will hate the new world order and will die protesting against it. He also wrote in another place, The political world of the open conspiracy must weaken, efface, incorporate, and supersede existing governments. The character of the open conspiracy will then be plainly displayed. It will be a world religion. This large, loose, assimilatory mass of groups and societies will definitely and obviously attempt to swallow up the entire population of the world and become a new human community. The immediate task before all people a planned world state, is appearing at a thousand points of light. But generations of propaganda and education may have to precede it. And that was from his book, 
Open Conspiracy, where he actually talks about all this stuff. And if you remember, H.G. Wells was part of the Society of the Elect that we talked about a few episodes ago, and he has been mentioned many times in the podcast before. And the next quote comes from Winston Churchill, and I quote, This worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstruction of society on the basis of arrested development, of envious malevolence, and impossible equality has been steadily growing. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. And now, at last, this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become practically the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. And these people he's referring to, the extraordinary personalities from the underworld of the great cities of Europe and America, he has referred to similar people as being part of global conspiracies and running everything behind the scenes. We've read quotes to that extent before. So he's saying they also basically control even these great powers and empires that are supposed to be against the other empires that they control. Yeah, it's the whole one world government idea and the Fabian idea of working behind the scenes, controlling everything behind the scenes, making it seem as though there are fights and disputes and enemies and differences, when in reality, it all ends up being exactly what they want it to be, no matter which way you go and who wins and blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the same thing with the New World Order idea. So the next bit is... That in 1947, John Dewey, who I'm sure you've heard of, the father of American public education, he said that education must teach, quote, the establishment of a genuine world order, an order in which national sovereignty is subordinate to world authority. And the next bit from 1947 as well, the National Education Association Associate Secretary William Carr writes in the NEA Journal that it is the job of teachers to, quote, teach about the various proposals that have been made for the strengthening of the United Nations and the establishment of a world citizenship and world government. So we have talked about this stuff before, about different ways that the education system has been designed and used to steer society We did a whole episode that focused on those things and read plenty of quotes that basically, well, not basically, that did say that teachers were supposed to be social engineers in one way or another. And yeah, we see the same thing when it comes to a world government. This says world citizen, world government, world authority. It's all the same thing. So the next quote is from Nebraska State Senator Peter Hoagland. And this was from 1983. He said, and I quote, Fundamental Bible-believing people do not have the right to indoctrinate their children in their religious beliefs because we, the state, are preparing them for the year 2000 when America will be part of a one-world global society and their children will not fit in. So he claims to be worried that if someone is religious, they're not going to fit into a world society? I Don't really see why not, unless you want to get rid of all the different religions, I guess, or if they're being taught by their parents and continuing 
the cultural norms and beliefs that their parents have. Now, basically, anytime the state is not the one that is in charge of indoctrinating children or teaching children or guiding them or exposing them to things, yeah, then it's bad if the parents or anybody else is doing this instead of the state because that takes control away from the state. And that was kind of his point, that the state needs to indoctrinate these children to be ready for the year 2000 when a one-world global society ends up coming about. Well, it's past the year 2000, and that has not happened, but we are still growing closer and closer, and there are still plenty of people that believe that that is the end goal. The next one is another one from a Rockefeller. This one's David Rockefeller from 1994, and I quote, This present window of opportunity during which a truly peaceful and interdependent world order might be built will not be open for too long. We are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order. That's one of the most direct ones we have had, and of course, coming from a Rockefeller, who we have talked about the Rockefellers over and over again as well, especially in this series on corruption and conspiracy. They are heavily involved. So let's get back to just talking about what's going on here and mainly what are the goals and then we'll get into the methods. But let's first cover the goals of the New World Order. We have heard from many people that I'm sure you recognize the names of that this idea of a New World Order is on the minds of many state leaders and very influential people over the historical period that we have covered mainly the 20th and 19th century and I can tell you that it also exists in the 21st century. The New World Order has been a phrase used by American presidents like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and George Bush. It's also been used by state leaders over in Europe like Macron and Tony Blair and many other people. Basically, plenty of world leaders all around the world have this idea, and so we need to look at what this idea is. What does it truly consist of? So if we look at a glance, the goals actually sound really good. It sounds like they want to do things that we can all agree with and we all want for the world and for society, for ourselves, for our families. But when you really get into it, behind this facade of a good grand scheme is more of a disturbing and dystopian view of how the world would look. And when we really see how they would go about it and what they're specifically talking about behind these vague, pleasant-sounding sound bites then it does look very disturbing and it does look like they would be creating a dystopian society that we actually don't want to live in that's not what we want so let's talk about some of these goals the first goal would be world unity and world peace or in general globalization or globalism and this all sounds great. We do want unity around the world. We do want peace around the world. So yes, this sounds good. But when we really look into what does that mean? Well, that actually means that we would have to have a one world government. 
And that's actually not what most nations actually want when you ask their people. Do you want to get up, give up your national sovereignty and become part of this gigantic one world empire? Usually they would say no. No, on average, if you took a democratic method to figure out what the people of the world wanted, that would probably not be it. So this one world government now doesn't necessarily have to be a political government. We've talked about before, especially in our financial episodes, about the control that people have when they control the money supply of a nation. So what some have proposed is that this would be a one-world monetary government, in a sense, where you have a group that is worldwide that controls the money flows to all the nations and in doing so controls all the nations. So in a sense, you have a one world governing body, but it's behind the scenes and it's not directly seen. And although it does control things, people aren't really aware of what's going on. And This is what some people believe the central banks do. We do have a central bank of central banks that kind of loans money to other central banks. We have the World Bank, the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, all these different large banking institutions that are oftentimes private or ran by private individuals and not governments per se. We have things like the Federal Reserve System that we have talked about and I'm not going to get into again. But the point is, this one-world government doesn't necessarily have to be what we would think of as a one-world government. We have a leader that rules the entire world or a parliament or whatever the case may be. This could just be control the money supply for all the different nations, and in doing so, you control all the different nations, and there's your one-world government. In general, with this one-world government philosophy, it's pretty much always talked about as being socialist and having a fiat currency. And that's how it would, in a sense, begin. It would start off with socialism, where they redistribute wealth to everyone so that we can have economic equality and all this kind of stuff and stop corporate greed and all these things. We'll get into those things. But It's going to be socialist, it's not going to be a capitalist society or anything of that nature, although it will pretend to be capitalist society, but in general, socialism is the way they want it to be, and you have to have a fiat currency because that is the only way to totally control a monetary supply. If you are limited by something like gold, for example, would be probably the best example of a hard money, a hard currency. It's very hard to manipulate a currency when it is all backed by gold, and it's hard to just create more out of nowhere. That doesn't really work when it comes to gold. Until we figure out how to create gold in a lab and do some sort of like 3D printing of a gold bar, well, then maybe. Maybe they keep that stuff secret, and then they print off as much gold as they want. Yeah, it's it's possible. But As of the way the world works right now, as far as we know, that is not possible. And so what they would have to do if they want to control money, create money all they want, um, set inflation rates, have all this control over the economy that they want, it has to be a fiat money. And it has to be a one world currency in a sense where it is fiat money that is used by everyone in the world. You could technically have multiple fiat currencies that are just pegged to each other. So 
they have the same value, so it really doesn't matter. But yeah, pretty much you have a fiat one world currency. And with the New World Order in general, you have complete control by an elite class that runs everything, controls everything, and through these systems have basically unlimited money and unlimited power because they rule the entire world and they totally control the money supply. And so I would think that that's probably not what you want, definitely not what I want. And uh, that definitely sounds very different than saying, we want world unity and world peace. Well, yes, we do want unity and peace, but we don't necessarily want it the way it's been laid out, as I described. And the way I've described it actually comes from quotes and writings and memoirs and things like this from heads of state and heads of industry and people like that. I'm not just making all this stuff up randomly myself. This is the plan as it has been laid out by many different people like Fabians, like the Council on Foreign Relations and many other groups that actually have this stuff in writing. So look it up if you want to learn more about it. I have introduced you to all these ideas before, and this will be one of the last times we'll go over this stuff. So the next goal is economic equality for all and ending poverty. So in general, that sounds great. We want equality. We don't want poverty. So yes, this sounds good. But let's see what that actually does. It ends up condensing the classes into just a working class and an elite class. And that's it. When you get rid of the poor class, and in order to bring everybody up to a working class status, you basically get rid of the upper middle class and the upper class because you're taking away all their wealth to distribute it to these lower classes in order to make everybody equal, you end up having everybody equal. So you have one working class and that's it. That is the only class in society. And then of course you have to have one other class because someone has to manage, someone has to rule. And so you have to have an elite class that takes this on. And these are going going to be experts and yeah, people that are able to manage everything in the world. And with this, you do keep society complacent and compliant because you don't have people that are completely poor. You don't have people that are desperate. You don't have people that are coveting what the rich have and looking at all these wealthy businessmen and industrialists and saying, oh, why do they have so much and I have so little? This isn't fair. And then they rise up to do something about it or try to vote to do something about it. Well, this won't happen because everybody's going to be roughly equal. And that's the ideal of a socialist, economically equal society. And that does really help the elite rule things because you don't have to worry about a disgruntled populace rising up against you. Ideally, that's the idea at least. I'd like to put in another quote here that talks about basically this worry that they might have if you had a really poor class. And this is talking about the time just before the Nazi party came into power in Germany. Quote, Housing conditions were very bad at the time. The Vienna manual laborers lived in surroundings of appalling misery. I shudder even today when I think of the woeful dens in which people dwelt, the night shelters and the slums, and all the tenebrous spectacles of odor, loathsome filth, and wickedness. 
what will happen one day when hordes of emancipated slaves come forth from these dens of misery to swoop down on their unsuspecting fellow men for this other world does not think about such a possibility they have allowed these things to go on without caring and even without suspecting in their total lack of instinctive understanding that sooner or later destiny will take its vengeance unless it will have been appeased in time that quote comes from hitler from mein kampf and he recognized this reality that if you have people that live in these horrible, loathsome filth and wickedness, these horrible conditions like this, then these people are definitely going to be ready to rise up against the government. And if you are a government that does not realize this, then you will not last too long, that it will happen unless you appease it in time. And this is the appeasement. You redistribute wealth from the upper class. You give it to the poor people. The upper class might not be happy about it, but you get rid of the biggest threat, and that would be the lower classes because they are the greatest numbers, and you cannot have them rising up against you. And so that's how you deal with that. The next goal that is talked about with this New World Order concept is to stop discrimination and hate speech, which, yes, we think that's nice. We don't want people saying hateful things to minorities generally. We don't want discrimination against minorities, certain races, LGBT people. We don't want discriminations for um, gender or religion or any of this stuff. And so to stop discrimination and to stop hate speech sounds great. We want this. Well, how in the world would you do that? Well, in order to do it, we would need to control all the media and put out propaganda and censor dissent and control the entire internet and control personal interactions and how people deal with each other in business and in private. We would need to control movements. We would need to create them and steer them. And yeah, these are all the things we would need to do. Well, does that sound good? No, that doesn't sound good. You don't want the government to control all media. You don't want the government to be in charge of propaganda for the entire populace. You don't want them censoring any kind of dissent that comes out or really censoring much of anything because that is extremely dangerous when you have a government in control of all these things. Now multiply that times a thousand when you have a one world government that's in control of all these things for the entire world everything on the internet, everything on TV, everything that people can access from books to articles to papers to the news to movies, just all of it. What if they actually did have control over all these things? Well, I don't think that's what any of us really want, but that's what has to happen if you want to control things like the vague term of hate speech. Now, we all know that there are people that say very hateful things that would easily be classified under hate speech. But if you've been paying attention recently to many of the people that have been kicked off of platforms like YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all these places, a lot of them are not talking about killing somebody because of what race they are. It's nothing to that extent. 
And even if they do, that is wrong without a doubt, and that should be condemned. However, when you put that power into one small elite group that runs the entire world, that gets extremely dangerous because they can use vague terms like hate speech to basically deplatform and censor anybody they want. That's not ideal. When you talk about stopping discrimination, well, what if I am not very fond of, let's say, Christians, and I have a business, and I don't really want to do business with Christians, so maybe I up my prices a little bit if I know that that's how they are, and I don't want to be around them, I don't want to hear their sermons, whatever it may be. Well, that is something that I, as a business owner or personal individual, am making a choice on, on who I want my customers to be. I might want this type of customer and not want that type of customer, and when you have the government stepping in and telling me which customers I can have and what are the specific conditions in which I can not have a customer, well, that gets a little sketchy. Again, it's a power that could be used well and could go well if it was an ideal world, but we all know we don't live in an ideal world. And so this is a power we do not want to bestow on some elite group running the entire world. We want to figure this out ourselves. If there is a business in town that refuses to serve anyone that is black or Hispanic, and they will only serve white Caucasian customers, well, more than likely, if that community is what we would consider decently moral at all, people would not go there. They would not support this business, and that business would then go out of business, and it wouldn't exist anymore. And bam, you solve the issue without actually using the government at all. If the government stepped in and said, hey, you have to serve these people, then more than likely when a black customer comes in there, the cooks might do something to their food that would be rather unpleasant. The servers might not treat them very well when they are serving them, and on and on. So that doesn't actually solve the issue of discrimination. It pretends to, but it really doesn't actually solve anything. When you have movements, then the government would have to control these movements. You've had things like civil rights and gay rights and the sexual revolution, feminism, all these things. And it has come out in every single one of these examples years down the road that you have some declassified document that comes out and shows that there were informants and CIA agents and plants and all these different movements that are helping to steer them, making them a little more extreme or a little less extreme and going certain ways. And this is just the way it's gone. And this is just specifically in America with these movements. So you multiply that times a worldwide government with worldwide movements trying to make changes to this elite world government. And it's probably pretty easy for them to take over the movement and steer it the way they want. You can look at secret societies for this, like the uh, Freemasons, for example, they had to break away because the Illuminati had infiltrated the Masons. And so then you had a splinter group and they were the Freemasons. They actually got free from this Illuminati infiltration. And so this happens in all different types of examples and situations. But when you have a world government and you are controlling things like discrimination and hate speech, 
this is what you have to do. You have to take control over all these movements because these movements determine what is hate speech and discrimination. And if you are a government and you can control these movements, then you are the one that dictates to society what these definitions are. What is discrimination? What is hate speech? What is acceptable and what is not? You can determine this by steering the movements and therefore steering society. You also would need to have a one-world religion. It's like the idea that I've heard many times that we all serve the same God and that even though you worship it differently than I do, it's all the same God. And even atheists that don't serve any God, they serve the same ideals at least. And basically it's this idea, it's this, I don't know, this kind of neoliberal religious movement. I don't know what it is. It's basically trying to normalize everything and taking out all the extremes and saying that all these religions are basically the same at their core. When in reality, if you read the Quran and then you read the New Testament, they're extremely different. And then you read some Buddhist texts and Hindu texts and some atheist texts. These are extremely different. They teach totally different things they are definitely not talking about the same deity. There's no getting around that. But if you can convince the world that this is the case and that we, we all, in a sense, serve the same God, then you are definitely fairly far along the road of having a one-world religion. That, hey, we can all agree, at least, that there is a deity, or if not, that there is some controlling force in the universe, and even if not, then there are these ideals that we all want to follow, and let's agree upon that, and then we all, you know, go this way and try to live our lives in a certain way, and then you have these churches that would be preaching this type of stuff, you would have mosques teaching this type of stuff, and synagogues, and eventually, over time, give it a few hundred years, and you end up with a one-world religion when you just basically make everything pretty much the same. And that goes along with the theme for having world unity and world peace. Doesn't this sound great? Well, that's what you have to do, because religions are a huge source of discrimination and hate speech, because some religions say things that are not so kind about certain nationalities and races, and some religions teach that People should act in certain ways that are discriminatory, according to most people. And some religions just teach things that offend other people. And so that creates an issue where people get offended. They feel like they're being discriminated against. And usually in retaliation, they discriminate against said religious people. And so if you want to get rid of discrimination, you pretty much have to get rid of religion. But you're not going to totally get rid of it because Religion is something that's existed for, as far as we know, all of mankind's history. You're not going to get rid of it. People have this innate desire to have something that is greater than themselves. And we have to have this as a society. So what do you do? You just take over the movement, like we talked about with movements. Religious movements are the same way. That can be taken over, subverted, you steer it in a certain direction, and there you go. We have a one-world government. We have a one-world currency. We have a one-world religion. And yeah, that's the way it goes. 
So the next goal would be to stop greed and corruption. We want businesses and markets that have a conscience. And of course, yes, this sounds great. We don't like greed. We don't like corruption. We don't like the way some businesses and markets take advantage of people and put people down. And yeah, so that does sound good. But again, what does that mean? Well, in order to do this, you have to control all regulation. Because you have to regulate these businesses if you don't want them to act in a certain way. How do you get them to not act in a certain way? Well, you force them not to. You make a law. You make a regulation. So you control all regulation. Now, what happens when all regulation for all businesses all around the world is decided by one small group of people? Well, that's a huge concentration of power that is probably not going to go very well long term. And that's what you would need to have, though. So... What else do you have to control? You have to control all business in general. You have to control all production. You have to control all jobs and all profits. You have to control all these things. You have to control basically anything related to business and markets in order to make sure that they act in a way that is not greedy and that is not corrupt. And this is a little interesting because in reality... What this is, is crony capitalism. When you have, uh, what do they call it? Public-private partnerships. This is a term that gets thrown out a lot that sounds really nice. When you have the best of the public sector with the best of the private sector, you mix them together, and of course you're going to have some great results. Well, the reality is when you mix business with government, that's called crony capitalism. And each one gets a favor from the other one and they gain control. The businesses stuff out their competition. The government appeases the people voting for them and get a little bit on the side. And yeah, that's crony capitalism. That's not what we actually want. But it sounds good when you say you're stopping greed and corruption. We would need to control basically all permission for business decisions. So if a business wants to make a decision, they want their company to go in a certain way, they want to change a certain product or whatever, they'd have to get permission from the government. That way the government can make sure that they are not doing it for greedy motivations or there is no corruption or someone's taking a bribe in order to do a certain thing or they're bribing, say, the CEO in order to say something. Yeah, we got to make sure that that does not happen. And so they would have to get permission from the government, this world government, in order to do really anything. You would have to have licensing for everything because, again, in order to do anything related to business or markets, you would need government permission. And what does that mean? That means licensing. You would have to go get a license to do just about anything. That is how we deal with government permissions in our world today, and that's probably how it would be. So we end up with pretty much true socialism, where the government does control the means of production, but it'll be a little behind the scenes, because on the face of it, there will be businesses, and it'll look like capitalism, but the reality is, it will just be pure socialism, in a way that is not this pleasant and rosy, warm-feeling term that some people refer to it as nowadays. The next goal that we're going over will be to protect the environment and to save the planet. Yes, we all do want to save the planet. We all do want to protect the environment, and that is all good stuff. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. However, how are you going to go about it, and what do you actually mean by that? That's the true question. Well, 
we would need more control again over regulation. This time it'll be for environmental reasons. So we already need to control everything related to business and markets to keep out the corruption and the greed. But we also have an excuse for what direction businesses should go, what they should produce, how they should produce it, that type of thing. And that excuse is for environmental reasons. So that gives us more control as a government to steer businesses and industries in whatever way we want. It also allows us to gather populations in a physical manner. You would definitely want people to be in urban settings. We have this term urbanization. That's what you would want as a world government. You want everybody together because they're easier to control. They're easier to dish out propaganda to and society's easier to steer if you have these very kind of congested cities where a lot of people live and it's easier to take care of them that way and I don't know in a way that in some ways are good you can make sure that there is not very much crime there's not very much poverty all this stuff because you control everybody everybody's right there they're easy to reach but I don't know if we all want to be controlled by a one world government to that degree I think we do want some sort of freedom. If we want to have a house that's outside of the city, if we want to have a place where we can have a garden or an orchard, orchard, or if we want animals of some kind or whatever, we want to be able to do this. But that would not be allowed because that would be bad for the environment. Because anytime you are building a house, then you know that's bad for the environment. Or if you are clearing some land for a pasture, well, of course, that's bad for the environment. You're cutting down trees. You have to cut down trees to put in extra roads and you know all this kind of stuff. You could see how it's bad for the environment can be used as an excuse for really anything that takes place outside of a specifically physical city limit. And that's pretty much what you would need to do. That would be the best way to handle and steer a society if you are a, well, one world government. So the other thing about controlling a population is you would want to control their quality and their quantity. So this gets into eugenics. Now we just did an entire episode on eugenics, so I am not going to go over that again. You should have a good idea of what that means and how that's been used. So Another aspect of this would be what is termed as population replacement. So you would want a homogeneous ethnicity. So kind of like how we're normalizing all religion and we're normalizing all standards. We're defining what everything means. What does it mean to be discriminated against? What does hate speech really mean? What does it mean when you say the term God or morality or truth we're having to normalize this. We're setting one standard for the entire world. Well, you have to do the same thing when it comes to race, race and ethnicity and nationality, because these are things that are divisive, and we don't want to be divisive, and we don't want people to be individualistic. So we have to make sure that everybody's the same. We want them the same in their economic status. We want them the same with their ideals and morals, and we want them to the same in how they view themselves and those around them. So instead of having places like, let's say, Norway or Sweden, that's at least used to be 98 probably percent uh, very white and many of them blue eyed and blonde. And you have this one stereotype that 
it seemed like those countries did fit that stereotype very well. And there are other countries like this where pretty much everyone in that country or in that region is all pretty much the same. Well, if you're trying to normalize everything on a world scale, then you can't have that because those people are going to clash with people that are from Somalia that are very dark skinned and they're all the same too. But we want this world order and we do want order and we want everyone to get along. And the easiest way to do this is to have homogeneous ethnicity. So what you do is you move in some people of another nationality and ethnicity, you move them into a city or culture or region, and they start intermingling with the people that reside there. And as they breed together, then those ethnicities mix together. And over time, a few hundred years or so, you end up with basically one race. And they're going to be one nationality because it's a one-world government. There are no nations anymore. We gave up national sovereignty, and so everybody gets along a lot better under these conditions, and that's what you would pretty much have to do. Now, there are different empires that did this throughout history. Babylon, for example, would take populations out of a certain country they would take over, and they wouldn't kill them. They would just move them to a totally different country or region, and that way they would kind of give up their national identity and their national goals, and in exchange, they would start to blend and assimilate with the cultures that they were put into, and it does the same thing to the cultures they were put into. It kind of dilutes their... Uh, sense of nationalism, I guess. Um, and it's a lot easier to control that way. And if you're trying to control a population, then that's kind of what you want. You want them easy to, I guess, easy to predict and easy to control, easy to manage. If you just have one homogeneous group that kind of thinks the same way, acts the same way, looks the same way, then they're a lot easier to control as a society in that way. So the last part of this aspect would be the fact that we still do need an enemy. We've talked about this. We talked about this with Plato, that you always have to have an enemy. Because if you don't have an enemy, if you don't have a danger, if you don't have fear, then society starts thinking, well, why do we need this government after all? Why do we need someone protecting us if there's nothing to be protected from? Well, when you get into environmentalism, you've created a brand new enemy. What are those enemies? Well... It's the enemies that are destroying the planet and that are harming the environment at an extraordinary rate and that are doing all these things that are bad for all of us and bad for society as a whole. The world is going to be destroyed and all of society will fail. Humanity will end. Who is this enemy? Well, it's just humans in general. So humans are the new enemy in general because as humans, we actually do destroy the world. And so if you remember the movie The Matrix, Agent Smith talks about this, that humans are a virus. And in a way, that's true. You hear about the anti-carbon movement, that carbon's bad. And what type of life do we have from a biological sense on this planet? Everything is carbon-based life. So if that's the case and carbon's bad, then... On a metaphorical level, in a sense, life is bad, and we don't want it. So what we have to do is we're not going to wipe out the entire human race, of course. We want a human race, but we want to make sure that it's very manageable, that we control the population, that we control their impact on the environment, and so we can keep them in these specific 
high density urban areas and we get them very homogeneous in every different aspect of their lives. We control what they do, how they do it, how businesses are operating. We basically just control everything. And the environmental aspect and saving the planet and protecting the planet is a good excuse for a lot of this stuff too. So although I would agree that we need to treat the environment well and take care of the environment and most of these movements are not necessarily a bad thing. When you get into this idea of the new world order and a one world government, this is, again, another movement that they take over and that they use as an excuse for a lot of these different measures. So with all these different goals, and we heard these quotes from all these different world leaders from all over the world, all different nations and stuff, well, how in the world would they organize? How would they coordinate? How would they get together and talk about these different things? Wouldn't we know about it? Well, there actually are many meetings that we do know about that happen every year all around the world. We have things like the G20 Summit. We have Davos. Those are both very big, and they're talked about, they're reported on, and those are pretty out in the open. We have others that are not as out in the open. We have the Shanghai Cooperative Organization. We have the Bilderberg meeting that is super secret that basically no one knows anything about, at least in recent years. There used to be reports that would leak out of there, but not anymore. We have places like the Bohemian Grove, and that one was so dark that I can't talk about it on this episode. So what I'm going to do, my rough plan at least, is in the next update episode, I'm going to talk about some of the things I came across when I was researching the Bohemian Grove. Very, very disturbing. And I will warn you ahead of time that it is graphic. It is not safe for work. It is not something that you want to be exposing your mind to if you are easily disturbed or you don't like hearing about things that are evil. So, um, if you do, if you are interested, you do want to know these things, then listen to the next update episode. I'll, I'll give the update first and then give plenty of fair warning. And then I'll talk about that stuff I uncovered. It's very, very bad, but it does kind of open your eyes to what these people are really like. And yeah, so point is these world leaders and elite people from the media, these are like heads of all these different media organizations like Washington Post and New York Times, heads of industry, people that are CEOs of places like Goldman Sachs and GE and all these giant international corporations, they all meet up together with heads of state and politicians from all the different major countries around the world. So when you have the politicians and people that run the media per se, and people that are running the international corporations, and they're all meeting together to talk about worldwide issues and worldwide politics. Well, yes, it fits right in with everything we're talking about with a new world order. That's the idea. You get everybody together, you get them all on the same page, you talk about these things, and how do we push these movements forward? And how do we do this? How do we go about this? What do we do for these certain industries? What do we do for these certain nations? How do we deal with these different conflicts so that we're all on the same page and moving in the same direction towards this globalist society? And how do we do that? Well, you do it through these meetings. You meet together, you talk about it, you go over it, you listen to talks and speeches about these things. And that's what happens. There are plenty that we know about. There might be plenty that we don't know about. But here's some examples. Now, 
what about the tools and methods that are used for this? We talked about a one-world currency, and that would have to start off as being a fiat money. But people really like the idea of a sound currency, one that's actually backed by something, one that's actually valuable. And they want one that's actually ethical because, you know, this idea of greed and corruption and that kind of stuff. Well, a government could get around all these things by changing their fiat one world currency and gradually shifting that to one that is sound and ethical. And the things that have been proposed so far along this route would be something that's energy-based or land-based. So, for example, if it's land-based, let's say you do have a one-world government. Well, they essentially own the entire world, all the land in the world. And so what they could say is that each one of these world dollars is backed by a quarter acre of land or you know, however much, 100 square feet. It, I have no idea. Whatever they want to do, they could say that it's backed by land itself. And so that, that restricts them. They can't just willy-nilly print off however much money they want because every bit of money is backed by a certain amount of land. And maybe it depends on the value of that land. So if they improve the land, then they maybe can print a little more money because the land is worth more than it was before. I don't know. There's many different ways you can take that. But that's been talked about where you have a land-based currency. And again, the issue is, well, who's actually taking inventory of all the land in the world and making sure that that matches up with all the dollars in the world? And who controls what the value is for all this different land? And yeah, who controls who gets the land? If the government owns all the land and all the world, then they're the ones that determine who gets to live on it, where they get to live on it, what they get to do to it, all these different things. So again, it sounds good to have a sound currency but in reality, that doesn't really sound like the greatest option. What about energy-based? And this is the most common, where you talk about basically having energy credits. We, we actually do have this example playing out on a small scale, and that would be carbon credits, where companies are paying for the amount of carbon they release into the atmosphere, because carbon is bad. And so... What you have here is the beginning of an energy-based currency. You basically pay for the energy you use. And everything takes energy to create, to produce. And so if you are buying something, then you're basically paying for the energy it took to create said item. And if you want to do something, then you're essentially paying for maybe the harm you're doing to the environment in order to do this said thing or whatever the case may be. But the point is that it's all energy-based, and you're paying with energy. The interesting thing about this is that through this, the government actually controls all energy because they control the entire monetary system. They control everything, but they, they would dish out a certain amount of energy to everyone, and everybody basically has a universal basic income where we all have a certain amount of energy that we can use, and we get a certain amount allotted to us. We can use that to buy different things that we want with our energy credits, or we can just use it on energy itself, maybe. I don't really know how all this plays out. There are many different ways, again, that this could go. But where do we see this playing out? Well, in things like carbon credits or things like smart grids, where that's another thing that sounds really good. We have a smart grid and the local government can, or local company, whoever's running the utilities there, 
can shut off the grid if there's a power outage somewhere. They can isolate it really well, and then the power doesn't have to go out to all these other people while they're working on it and repairing it. That's great. They can monitor energy usage and make sure that there aren't blackouts and things like that. And again, this sounds good, but what that does is puts all energy under the control of a one-world government, which gets to be very scary. What if they want to make sure that a certain population does or doesn't do a certain thing? They can force them to because they control basically their means of survival. Energy becomes the means of survival, especially if you're in an urbanized setting. It's not like you can just grow your own food. It's not like you can just go hunting. You can't do any of this. You're locked in the city that you can't go out of and you can't mess with the environment outside of the city. And the government controls whether or not you even have electricity which is your only means for survival, or your energy credits, which is your only way to buy food. So yeah, that's a lot of control that they would have, and that maybe not be ideal. But to them, that's even better than a fiat money. That gives them complete control. They can control how much energy is produced, and they could give different reasons why they want to produce more energy or less energy. Let's say we're protecting the environment even more because we're having some issue of global climate change, or let's say, you know, our things are going very successfully, all these programs we have instituted, so we're going to put out more energy out there, and they can do whatever they want, and they would use these types of things as the excuse, so that's even better than a fiat money, and to the people, it sounds even better, because it actually means something, it's represented by something, it's backed by something, and that something is energy, and so, uh, in a sense, everybody's happy, but in reality, it's just another way that the New World Order controls everything under that situation. Here is an interesting little bit from the Harvard International Review. Quote, A new currency is emerging in world markets. Unlike the dollar, euro, and yen that trade for tangible goods and human services, this new money exchanges for pollution, particularly emissions of carbon dioxide. Carbon credits, as they are called, are poised to transform the world energy system and thus the world economy. So how in the world would people and citizens and nations actually agree to a one-world government? Well, again, we talked about this with Plato and Aristotle, but you create a crisis, and that is the best way. Think of all the modern wars that have happened and all the changes. They say one of the biggest changes in how society operates in the United States was after World War II and going through World War II. And World War I was very impactful on society, and pretty much every war we go through has more and more impacts. Look at things like 9-11. If you're in the United States after 9-11, you saw things like the Patriot Act get enacted, and the TSA pop up in all the airports, and lots of things that would not have happened otherwise. If, if there was not this one big terrorist attack that happened, no one would have put up with all these things that the government is doing, like spying on their own citizens and monitoring everybody and having the government inspect everybody that goes through an airport and just all these different things. People would not put up with that. But when you have this big crisis and everybody's scared and there's this big enemy, big bad enemy, and you know they're going to take away your life and your freedoms and everything you have, well, then you'll give up a little bit of your liberty in order to gain more safety. And that should remind you of the quote from Ben Franklin. I don't remember it exactly, but basically he who would give up a small amount of liberty to gain more safety doesn't deserve either liberty or safety. 
And that's the point that you can't give up your freedoms just for this vague notion of feeling safe, because usually it is a government that purposefully created a situation to make you feel like you weren't safe in order to be able to institute these changes. We've talked already in episodes before about false flag operations and how most of the modern wars have been started and they have been started intentionally. And what do you think the goal was there? Well, to create a crisis, to put into effect certain things that they wanted to put into effect, but would not have been able to otherwise unless there was some extenuating circumstance going on. So let's create an extenuating circumstance. Now, there are also plenty of wars that have been initiated intentionally, specifically for means of power and politics and oil and things like that. So that's not the only reason, but usually you have many reasons to each one of these large-scale world events. And so this is one of them. You create a crisis. What about the crisis of climate change? Well, we already talked about how you can use the environment and climate change to enact many different policies that people will get behind and gladly do because they think, well, this is what is good for the world. This is what we need. And so let's go ahead and do it. Let me read a quote from Nietzsche. So he said, and I quote, I mean such an increase in the menace of Russia, for example, that Europe would have to resolve to become menacing too, namely to acquire one will by means of a new caste that would rule Europe, a long, terrible will of its own, that would be able to cast its goals millennia hence, so that the long, drawn-out comedy of its many splinter states, as well as its dynamic and democratic splinter wills, will come to an end. The time for petty politics is over. The very next century will bring the fight for dominion of the earth, the compulsion to large-scale politics. So Nietzsche is pretty much talking about this exact thing, creating a new world order through a giant crisis. And his example was Russia for his time period. That would have made the most sense. But it can really be any crisis that is created and that people believe and people are scared of. Usually wars are used, sometimes terrorist attacks, but yeah, you could have climate change, doesn't matter. Whatever you can use to scare people and have some big event, then yeah, they'll give up some of their freedoms and some of their liberties, some of their national sovereignty, and eventually you slowly get into the idea of a new world order. Like we talked about to begin with, you can't just jump right into it. You've got to give up little, 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 little at a time until all of a sudden, you know, we do technically have the nation of Israel, but it's pretty much the same as all the other nations around it. So, yeah, we don't really have this national identity anymore. We're pretty much just one world, and we all get along, and everything's peaceful, and this sounds great. And, yeah, you no longer have national sovereignty or national identity, and that's the way it ends up. That would be the goal, and this would have to happen slowly because, as I'm sure you realize, people would not give up their national identity right now just all at once to some elite power that's going to rule the entire world no that sounds horrible but they'll give up a little bit at a time as each crisis comes up and people feel more and more scared and more and more afraid so yep that's the way it goes now what are some other specific tools i've got three for you we've got technocracy and cybernetics and social engineering so let's start off with technocracy. Definition being the government or control of society or industry by an elite of technical experts. 
And that is what technocracy is. It's basically you have these technical experts that are ruling society, and they're doing it through data. And they are the experts. They're not politicians, but they are people that are experts in different fields. And all these elite experts get together and run things and and what would they would say would be an objective manner where they're not worried about their personal yeah careers and getting promoted and getting elected and all these things but rather they're just doing their job and they're the best at their job so yeah that would create the best world that's the idea and technocracy would be you are ruling according to doing what the data says pretty much and you do that fairly objectively and that is how you would run everything now let's do A few quotes here. We've got Professor Neil Postman. To whom will the technology give greater power and freedom, and whose power and freedom will be reduced by it? So, yes, it will give more power and freedom to the government ruling everything, and it will be reduced for the individuals living under them. Next quote will be another one from Brzezinski. He said, and I quote, The technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. The capacity to assert social and political control over the individual will vastly increase. It will soon be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen, and to maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the health or personal behavior of the citizen, in addition to more customary data. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. And this comes from Brzezinski's book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. And this is before we had all the controversy about data breaches and big social media companies gathering up all your information and all this kind of stuff. So even more true today than it was when that was written. Next quote would be from the book Towards Technocracy from 1933 by Graham Lang. Quote, rugged individualism must go. The individual must subordinate himself to the community. The next one is from American economist Arnold Kling. Quote, in a free market, consumer sovereignty and competition tend to create instability when sellers learn to game the system too well. In a technocratic system, it is more difficult for consumers to exercise countervailing power. Innovative competitors are often precluded by regulation. Suppliers tend to apply concentrated lobbying power to protect their interests, while the diffuse interests of the consumer are poorly represented in the political process. Centralized, regulated systems look good on paper, and they may be effective as a start. However, market systems learn faster— because competitive innovation prevents a market from getting captured by the incumbents who have learned how to game the system. So he's basically just pointing out how under a technotronic governmental system that you basically have even worse crony capitalism and the incumbents learn how to game that system and manipulate the numbers and the data and therefore solidify their positions in this world organization. The next one is from William Easterly, and pretty much he suggests that the greatest global debate of all should be on, quote, conscious design of development by experts versus spontaneous solution by individuals. 
and he's referring to issues of technocracy here. And he's basically saying that if you have this specific controlled design through technocratic means by a government, then the debate should be whether that's actually a good thing compared to spontaneous solution by individuals, which would be like free markets and freedom and liberty. And that that's the true debate. He talks about the poor and that it's less important to worry about the expertise that comes out of a society and a lack of experts. It's more important to talk about a lack of rights that exist among the poor and among a society, and that that's a more important issue. And so he's raising the same idea we've talked about many times before about the collective versus the individual. What is more important and what should we focus on? Now, what tools would a government use if it was a technocracy? Well, they would use things like big data and AI and a smart grid, maybe a lot of surveillance, um, technology like blockchain, where everything is visible and on a permanent record and able to be seen by everyone. There are many different tools and technologies that exist today that there have been many debates on and still debates do rage today on all these different things, on AI, on big data, on surveillance, on blockchain, on all these different things. And these are the tools that they would use in order to institute a technocratic rule. And again, technocracy is something that on the surface looks really good. You have experts that are running things instead of career politicians that we generally think of as corrupt. And uh, these experts actually know what they're doing. They know what's best. They are looking at things objectively. And so, yes, let's have them run the society. Well, but when we tie this in with all the other things we've talked about, about a one world government and a new world order, and we have these elite experts that are making all the decisions, it doesn't really sound as good when those are the people that are actually deciding everything in a society and how to allocate resources and make decisions for the entire world and all these things. And data can be manipulated. We have this issue with AI right now where the quality of the results really depends on the data that comes in. So some AIs can do very well and produce very good results, but if they have a little bit of bad data or missing data or they don't have enough data, then they can come up with a result that is completely wrong and completely off basis and doesn't really help anything. It hurts something. And that's just because of the data. Maybe they didn't have enough. Maybe there was some information that was wrong. Maybe a number was a digit off. Who knows what? But the point is, if you're running the entire world based on nothing but data and technology, there are things related to data and technology that go wrong. And that might not work out as well as we would like it to. So the next concept and tool would be cybernetics. Uh, again, a definition. Cybernetics is a transdisciplinary approach for exploring regulatory systems, their structures, constraints, and possibilities. Norbert Weiner defined cybernetics in 1948 as, quote, the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. So let's get some quotes here. Bertrand Russell, we've talked about him before. Quote, although this science will be diligently studied, it will be rigidly confined to the governing class. The populace will not be allowed to know how its convictions were generated. When the technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for a generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need for armies or policemen. And that's he's talking about cybernetics in that quote. The next one about cybernetics, we've got... 
the public relations team for the Club of Rome described itself as, quote, a group of world citizens sharing a common concern for the future of humanity. And this was published in 1972 by the Club of Rome's Project on the Predicament of Mankind. Limits to Growth. And here's the quote from that. The common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we must come up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All of these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy, then, is humanity itself. So again, that backs up what we were just talking about, about creating a new enemy and that that enemy is life itself and humanity itself and using environmental things as, ex- as excuses to do things. And we also talked about what um, Bertrand w- Russell pointed out about education. And if you control the education for a generation or more, then you can control your subjects much more security with it, securely without the need for armies or policemen. And we'll talk about education again in the next tool that we'll discuss. But again, it all just reinforces the same stuff. Now, with cybernetics, it's looking at regulatory systems and everything related to that. Uh, What are the structures? What are the constraints? What are the possibilities? How do we use government and regulation to control and steer a society. That is cybernetics, the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. And so we're talking about control and communication in the animal that includes humanity, uh, anything biological, and the machine would be anything technological. And so, again, you see the tie-in with technocracy, with the technology, and the tie-in with steering society, with the animal or humanity. And all these things do tie-in together. And cybernetics is something that is not a common term among the layman, but it is a common term in academia. A lot of people in these circles are well aware of what cybernetics is. There are colleges that teach courses on cybernetics Things related to cybernetics, where you're dealing with steering society and using regulation and technology and all these things, would would be things like automation. That would be a big one. Um, The Internet of Things in general, all the connected devices. How are you controlling communications? How are you controlling technology and using these things to control a society? And all these different types of things. So we've got automation, Internet of Things, 5G, um, censorship of the media, and if you look at media and communications mergers of these giant companies that have been merging over the past decade or so, you have these conglomerates and basically only a handful of companies control like 90% of all the media around the world. And yes, these are the types of things that are very related to the idea of cybernetics, where you are using all these different things to control a society. And it's a, it's a scientific study of all this stuff. It's how do we look at all these different parts? How do we look at all these tools? How do we look at the merging of technology and government and regulation and individuals and populations 
how do we look at all these things and scientifically come up with ways of merging them together, controlling them, steering them, guiding them, all this kind of stuff that is cybernetics. So the next tool that I'm mentioning here and the last one we'll go over is social engineering. So we've mentioned social engineering before, but we can go over it again and all social engineering is is exactly like it sounds you're engineering basically society and this involves many different things social engineering involves things like education and population control and steering society in general Um, there are lots of ways that this happens so if you think of definitions changing that's a really big one you've got words that mean totally different things than they used to learn. The definitions and the words, the words have been co-opted and the definitions have been changed to mean something totally different than they once did. And through changing the definition, you kind of change movements and ideas and the way people think about things. What about the word liberal? Well, liberal used to mean that you are focused on liberty and complete freedom and free markets, things like this. Nowadays, liberal means pretty much the exact opposite. It's the progressive movement. It's the political left. And that's basically the exact opposite of what liberal used to mean. Now you have to say classically liberal if you're meaning the true definition of liberal. And if you just say liberal, then they expect you to mean this new definition. The The word has been changed. The definition's been changed. What about morality? Well, at one point in time, morality used to be considered one certain thing, and mainly that would come from the Ten Commandments from a Christian perspective. And even people that were not Christian, society was such that the morality of a society still fit that bill. Murder is wrong, stealing's wrong, lying is wrong, this kind of stuff. It's these basic tenets. It's not necessarily that everybody was a Christian. It's just that the idea of morality fit in with Christian values, and that's where it came from. Whereas nowadays, morality is relative. It depends on who you are. It depends on what the situation is. It depends on what's going on. And yes, the definition of morality has changed. Same with truth. It's the exact same thing. What about conspiracy? Well, conspiracy historically just means that a person or group is conspiring against another one behind the scenes and it's kind of secretive. And that's what conspiracy is. And conspiracy has steered many different things all through history and is behind many different kings and empires and world events and wars and all kinds of stuff. There's always conspiracy involved in one way or another. But nowadays, when you mention conspiracy, people think conspiracy theory and something that's just some wacko believes this thing that's just completely crazy that aliens are going to take over the world next week or, you know, who knows what. But Again, that's just an example of the definition changing, the idea changing. When you hear a word, you don't think the same thing that you used to. Social engineering in general is one that has changed as well. Nowadays, that's related to cybersecurity. And it's totally different context, totally different meaning. But if you just type in a search online for social engineering, the majority of the results will be for cybersecurity and a totally different different definition, a totally different word, totally different concept. And that's kind of the way these things work. You use it to mask ideas and to cover up ideas, to delegitimize ideas, to change the way people think about things. That is social engineering. When you control what words mean and what concepts 
are and how they can be defined, then you are able to control society even more. That is just a tool you use to control a society. Uh, another aspect is that, in general, if you look at people that are, let's say, the elite, the people that we've been talking about, they already have a lot of money, and they have a lot of power, and they pretty much have everything that they could possibly want or need. What is the next goal? What else is there? Well, the only other thing that there is is to basically have an even bigger impact on society, and that would be by steering society and controlling society and controlling the human race in general. I mean, what else is there when you have all the money in the world and you have everything that you could possibly want or need, you have all the power, you control these giant corporations or huge political movements or whatever the case, countries even, who knows. But the point is, like, what else is there? What's the next thing? Well, the only other thing is to control society itself, to control it all, to control everyone, to really have the biggest impact on the world would be to control the way that society goes. And so that really is the only goal left for these power elite that we're talking about here. Now, another tool that is used would be specialization. So you have the intelligentsia and academia that are the more intelligent people in a society. Those are the ones that would actually be the real threats in a society, not just people that are kind of dumbed down and doing their own thing. They're complacent. They're compliant. We don't have to worry about them. But people that are actually intelligent and thinking about these things, studying things like politics and science, well, they might realize that some of this stuff that the government is doing and saying is either not moral or is just totally incorrect or is off basis or whatever. So how do you control that? You don't want to get rid of your smart people. You want smart people. You need smart people to progress society. So what you do is you make them highly, highly specialized. And that really focuses the intelligent and the academic. And it focuses them on a specific subject and a specific aspect of a specific subject so that they can't really see the big picture. We've talked about this when, in regards to education in general, that people aren't taught in a way where they can see the big picture and tie all these different events together. It's the same when it comes to this. If you go into the medical field and you're going to be a surgeon, you're probably going to specialize in a certain specific type of surgery. And so if you were asked to do a surgery of a totally different kind in a totally different manner, you have no clue what you're doing because that's not what you studied. You studied to do this specific type of neurosurgery. And when you're doing a torn meniscus, maybe that's just some totally different. You have no clue what you're doing. But the point is that when you're highly specialized, especially in the fields of science and psychology and education, these are the types of things that you get people extremely specialized in. You get the best of the breed, the highest, the most intelligent people. You get them extremely specialized. And what that does is it compartmentalizes these intelligent people. So they are not tying everything together. They're not all working together. They're not seeing the big picture. They're just doing their part and they're doing it very well. And that's a really good way of controlling very intelligent people and the people that for this type of new world order, the people that would be a threat would be these more intelligent people. But if you get them extremely specialized where they can't really deal with or handle or know much about anything beyond their very specialized 
worldview and whatever it is that they do, their profession, then it really makes it a lot easier because then you don't really have to worry about that group. And if you don't have to worry about that group and you've gotten rid of the poorest class and you've gotten rid of the upper middle class that used to have a decent bit of power, all you have is this one working class and you have the elites that are running things and the technocrats and these specialists, but they're controlled too because they're all compartmentalized. Then what do you have to worry about? Well, not a whole lot. You that's the idea is that at this point, after all this is said and done, you truly do run society and control society, and that's the way to do it. So these are all different ideas, these are all different tools, these are different concepts. There are many different people that are pushing these things. I read from people like Rockefeller and um people that are in philosophy and psychology and all these different fields and many different countries. And maybe they all work together. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's like an oligarchy where you have these different groups that are vying for power and doing different things. I honestly don't know. I really don't. But I know enough after all this research to know that there are people pushing for these things, that these are trends that are occurring and that this stuff is real and that the idea of a new world order is an idea that many people that are very powerful that we're referring to as the elite are going for. Many different groups are going for it. And this is the way it goes. So again, take it for what it is. I don't know everything. I don't know all the secrets. Probably no one does. But we do know some things. There are things that we do know. We do know some of these concepts. We do know some of these tools. We do know some of these goals. And we do know some of the people and groups involved. And so this is it. And this is out there to you now. This is the idea. There's one more thing that I wanted to mention, and I wasn't sure where to fit it into this episode, so I'll fit it in here near the end, and that is related to the Rockefellers. I wanted to give an example of how these things come into play, a specific example from a specific group, and since the Rockefellers are basically the stars of the show for the past many episodes, and they have shown up over and over again, they seemed like a good example, and there were two specific things that popped up that really got my interest and I wanted to make sure I got out there because they're interesting and they definitely relate to a lot of the things we've been talking about. Number one is an organization that was started up by one of the Rockefellers named the Population Council and um, I'm sure you can imagine this does relate to a lot of the things that we've discussed related to eugenics and manipulating third world countries and dealing with overarching trends in societies and cultures, public health, policy, just all these different things. And it's just another group that was created to basically do all these things under the uh, organization of a nonprofit and that looks like they're doing really good things for society. Let me just read what Wikipedia has to say, just a brief description of what the Population Council is, so you get an idea. And although this sounds good as I read it, just key into the specific phrases and words that relate to the topics we've been talking about in the past few episodes. And some of this stuff should stand out to you as yeah, not really being exactly what they say it is kind of a thing, where they're saying they're doing really good things for different people, but in reality, if you look at it through the lens of what we've been talking about, especially in this episode, you should be able to see through that and see that there probably are some programs and plans going on, some steering going on behind the scenes 
through this specific organization, the Population Council, but also others like it. So for the Population Council... The Population Council is an international, non-profit, non-governmental organization. The Council conducts research in biomedicine, social science, and public health, and helps build research capacities in developing countries. One-third of its research relates to HIV and AIDS, while its other major program areas are in reproductive health and its relation to poverty, youth, and gender. For example, the Population Council strives to teach boys that they can be involved in contraceptive methods regardless of stereotypes that limit male responsibility in childbearing. The organization held the license for Norplant Contraceptive Implant and now holds the license for Marina Intraturine System. I'm not sure about pronunciation there, sorry. The Population Council also publishes the journal Population and Development Review, which reports scientific research on the interrelationships between population and socioeconomic development. It also provides a forum for discussion on related issues of public policy and studies in family planning, which focuses on public health, social science, and biomedical research involving sexual and reproductive health, fertility, and family planning. Established in 1952 by John D. Rockefeller III, with important funding from the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, the council is governed by an international board of trustees. After many years of evolving, the 2006 council board includes leaders in many different fields. These include biomedicine, business, economic development, government, health, international finance, media studies, philanthropy, and social science. So yeah, as I read through that description, I'm sure many of those things pop out as the exact same things we've been talking about. And usually groups that are nonprofits, non-governmental organizations, those are the ones that are used for the types of things we've been discussing because they have no direct ties to government, but they also have no direct ties to businesses or specific individuals. And they're kind of off the books in a sense, but they can have great influence over major things, over society. Now, the second thing I wanted to mention was a question that I had myself related to the Rockefellers. So the Rockefellers made their fortune, for the most part, from Standard Oil, and they have been in the oil industry and have basically dominated that industry and made billions of dollars off of it. So... As we've talked about what the New World Order will use as tools and methods to progress their agenda, we've discussed things like green energy and renewable resources and the environmental movement in general. And basically, this is the exact opposite of the oil industry. The oil industry is the big enemy of all these things. So I was thinking, how does this relate? If the Rockefellers are into all these different things, they we're into the starting of the Federal Reserve System, the starting of the public education system, the starting of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, they've been at Bohemian Grove, all these different things that we've talked about, their name comes up over and over and over again. They're definitely involved with this stuff. I read some direct quotes about the New World Order from one of the Rockefellers, but it doesn't seem to match up with their investments in oil. So as I looked closer, I ended up seeing something that really made a lot of sense to me. And that was the fact that the Rockefellers decided back in 2014 
to divest all of their holdings from the oil industry and move that money into renewable resources and alternative energy. And so that does make a lot of sense. So if you think about the time period there, that was kind of the height of big oil. That's when big oil started getting a really bad name was shortly after the 2000 time period. And especially in recent years, it's gotten worse and worse. They've become more and more of a public enemy. Carbon has been a bigger and bigger deal. And it seems like the Rockefellers basically got out before that got too bad and before that got too messy. And they invested most of that money into the green sector. And when you think about it, if the New World Order does succeed in its agenda and these programs and trends continue to go the way they've been going, then what would be the industry in the area that will benefit the most from this? Well, in relation to what we're discussing here when it comes to energy, it will definitely be the renewable resource industry and green energy and alternative energy options. And that's where the Rockefellers are now very heavily invested. So who stands to profit? Well, definitely them and others like them. And as these things gain more steam, then they will gain more and more profits and more and more money. And so they were in oil, rode it all the way to the top, got out in a way that makes them look really good because they are exiting this horrible, evil thing that's ruining the planet. And they're getting into the way to save the planet and save society. So that looks really good. It makes them look great. And at the same time, it's going to make them a whole lot of money as time progresses and that movement continues. So that's it. I just wanted to mention those two things. It was kind of interesting, the fact that there is something called the Population Council that was started by the Rockefellers that covers all these things we've been talking about and that the Rockefellers divested all their money from oil, all their investments, and got into green energy and clean energy and basically are ready to profit from all the trends that I just talked about related to energy and the New World Order. So that's definitely interesting. That's about all we've got here. So let me wrap this up with a quote from the sociologist Petrum Sorokin. The organism of Western society and culture seems to be undergoing one of the deepest and most significant crises of its life. The crisis is far greater than the ordinary. Its depth is unfathomable, its end not yet in sight, and the whole of Western society is involved in it. It is the crisis of a sensate culture, now in its overripe stage, the culture that has dominated the Western world during the last five centuries. Shall we wonder, therefore, that if many do not apprehend clearly what is happening, they have at least a vague feeling that the issue is not merely that of prosperity, or democracy, or capitalism, or the like, but it involves the whole contemporary culture, society, and man. Shall we wonder also at the endless multitude of incessant major and minor crises that have been rolling over us, like ocean waves during recent decades? Today in one form, tomorrow in another. Now here, now there. Crisis political, agricultural, commercial, and industrial. Crises of production and distribution. Crises of moral, judicial, religious, scientific, and artistic. Crises of poverty, of the state, of the family, of industrial enterprises. Each of the crises have battered our nerves and mind. 
Each has shaken the very foundations of our society and culture, and each has left behind a legion of derelicts and victims. And alas, the end is not in view. Each of these crises have been, as it were, a movement in a great, terrifying symphony, and each has been remarkable for its magnitude and intensity. And then he later writes, In all failing societies, respect for obligation and family declines along with compassion for one's fellows to be replaced for preoccupation for amusement, diversion, and predation. So he basically sums up everything we've talked about, talking about these crises that seem to come up over and over again, like ocean waves and all these different ways, agricultural, political, commercial, the state, the family, morality, all these different things, that it's not just these specific things, it's not these specific issues, democracy, capitalism, prosperity, it's all of culture and society, and that it seems to be going as one big movement in a terrifying symphony, like that all this is being planned, all this is being steered, it's all going somewhere, and these are all just little pieces that are playing in the symphony. And that's pretty much what we've been talking about. Something else that should be fairly familiar to you is when he talks about this being a crisis of a sensate culture. He talks about how in all failing societies, there are certain things that tend to happen, that you have respect for obligation and family starts to go down and decline. You have compassion for your neighbor, for your fellows starts to go down and decline. And that all of this is replaced by preoccupation for amusement, diversion, and predation. So think about this. Amusement, entertainment, we have talked about that a lot. Diversion, basically distractions you don't really want to think about or deal with or learn about. The things that really matter, you just want to be entertained, distracted, whatever, go on about your life and be consumed by your own things. And predation, basically all the things that are related to predatory behavior. Look at the rise of things like pornography and a lot of the crime that takes place in many of the big cities around the world and all this kind of stuff, these seem to occur in all failing societies, according to Sorokin. He talks about how you have this rise in crime, uh, people are distracted, everybody's just focused on entertainment, you have a sensate culture all based around the senses and basically self-absorbed and just doing what they want for their own happiness, and that is the key to everything is to be happy, and that's the great meaning of life, pretty much. And these are things that, again, we've talked about over and over again in this podcast, and he's pointing them out here, and it all comes together. That's why I really like this section from his writings, is because he brings it all together. He brings together the fact that we have these crises that come up and that leads to certain things and that these are all being used for a certain goal or a certain purpose that a lot of things that happen in societies and in cultures throughout history are happening now and we can see them we can see the harm it's doing we can see where that leads and that it has to do with everything it's moral it's religious it's scientific it's the arts, it's the state, it's the family, it's business, industry, it's everything, and they're all wrapped together. And we've really seen that, especially in these past few episodes on corruption and conspiracy, that 
all these things tie together and a lot of the same names keep popping up, a lot of the same themes keep popping up, and that none of this is new. We go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, and this all occurs over and over again. History repeats itself, and that's the way the world works. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have enjoyed it. This does conclude our sections on corruption and conspiracy. And come back for our next episode. That'll be our update where I'll talk about what we're getting into next. And I'll do a little bit of extra content from the research I did on the Bohemian Grove. The stuff I said was very disturbing and only listened to if you are interested in hearing something very disturbing. And I'll go over that stuff in the next episode then. All the links are in the show notes. There's the email address. There's the website. There's the Patreon page and all the different stuff. So you can look for it there. You should know all that stuff by now. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the reviews we've gotten and the ratings we've gotten. If you have not done so, please do that. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.